Hello and welcome to this week's panel edition of The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On today's podcast, is the Official Secrets Act about to criminalise investigative journalism and put it on the same level as spying? We look at revisions to the infamous act that have been described as a licence for cover-up by notorious woke lefties, The Sun. Plus, why are the burdens of the pandemic and climate change being dumped on the shoulders of the young? Our guest, Phoebe Hansen, a youth activist with the National Citizenship Service, joins us later in the show to talk about why government policy on COVID and climate both needs change when it comes to young people. And what's really happening with those empty supermarket shelves? We talk to somebody who really knows about the fragility of those supply chains. Caution, wide load, it's this week's Bunker. Welcome back to the Bunker Roundtable. We've got a bit of news about next Tuesday's live show in London with Oh God, What Now? before we start. Some of our guests voiced a little bit of concern about COVID and we're happy to say that we're taking steps on that. We stopped ticket sales early, so the venue is going to be only about 80% capacity to create a bit of space for distancing. We're asking everybody to wear a mask, obviously, and to stop crowding at the bar, there's going to be an extended 30-minute interval instead of 15 minutes, and no merchandising stall this time, although there will be a special online merchandise stall. Biggest of all, for those who'd rather not come into town, or those not in London at all, or even people without tickets. We've decided to stream it for free on Zoom to our Patreon backers as well. Sign up by searching Patreon Bunker Podcast and you get a link to watch the lot live on your laptop. Now let's meet today's panel. Hello to comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah, who won't be joining us on the live show, sadly. Will you, Ahir? No, unfortunately not. Sorry about that. There was a terrible diary message, but never mind. Aisha Hazarika is stepping in um, as, as your understudy. So I want to ask you, Ahir, how's your Latin? Did you enjoy the weekend row about introducing Latin to 40 state schools in order to make it less elitist? Well, uh, salve, Andrew. Uh, that's probably <laughs> that's probably the extent of mine. Uh, I, I actually, I went to a state school that did Latin for a year because uh, we had like one teacher who was keen on doing it, but then she left after a year. And I quite enjoyed it uh, when it was happening. But the most notable consequence of it was that once when I was walking home after school, uh, mine from my Latin class was walking around with a group of lads from his estate, and I avoided getting mugged by my friend informing them that I was from his Latin class and was therefore fine. <laughs> uh, so Latin, Latin at state school uh, saved like my phone, at one yeah. stage, so that's a that, that's a positive. Did you like throw up like like Latin gang signs or something? Or, <laughs> you know, kind of like, yeah, man, it's a Latin thing. Stay away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Caecilius crew. While we're on uh, petty little culture war squabbles, what did you make of Digby Jones attacking Alex Scott for dropping her G's at the end of the run in and the jumping, like Pretty Patel does, which seems to have escaped the attention of Digby, the biggest publicity hog in the world. Well, I sort of resolutely decided not to learn anything more about either this event or this man because it seemed like exactly uh, what was uh, desired and would just make me furious. But th- there's no point in it, really, is there? It's just like, it's the way that people speak. You can understand the way that people speak. What does it matter? Uh, fuck you, Digby. Uh, well, fuck you, Digby. It's a quite, it's quite a good response. It, it seems to be very dog whistly. Is it really her accent that you're concerned with here, Digby? I, you know, it just it, and it just needs to bring out the worst of absolutely everybody. Piling in with, you know, why, why can't we have standards anymore? Well, because language changes and evolves, it always changes and evolves. Yeah, and I've got like my dad, for example, like my mother moved here when she was quite young, so she speaks with a British accent. My dad moved to the West as an adult, so mm-hmm. he has an accent that's a bit Indian, a bit American, a bit British, and everything. And it's just like, yeah, so he speaks differently and mispronounces certain things sometimes, but that means that he knows like four languages. That's a good thing and everything. And so, yeah, I've, I've, I've no truck with, uh, having a go at the the way that people speak, uh, because as long as you can understand them, then they're clearly speaking the same language. And also, welcome back to former diplomat Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Andrew. How are you? All right, not bad. Um, a couple of things are on the foreign desk, which is occupied by you, of course. The Belarusian sprinter Kristina Timonoskaya is seeking asylum in Poland after refusing to come home early from the Olympics. She says she's in fear of her safety if she goes home. Do you think, I mean, this is... An unusual incident. It could is this like to bring attention back to Belarus, where the authorities have been cracking down, but the kind of spotlight has moved on a little bit from there. Yeah, I think so. So it seems as though the uh, rather ghastly president of Belarus uh, basically kind of threatened the Olympic team before they set off, saying, "If you don't get any medals, you shouldn't bother to come back." And this is, you know, in Europe's last dictatorship, where where th- those kinds of threats 
feel rather serious. So there was obviously a bit of a cloud hanging over the Olympic team. And then this particular sprinter has publicly criticised the, the regime there and has also, her husband is has fled to Ukraine. So she's clearly not on board with, uh, with what's happening there. Um, so it, it's sort of a bit like going back to the Cold War days when periodically you'd have a... Uh, a, a sort of, you know, a, a Russian athlete who tried to defect at one of these major events. What, what is the state of play in the, in the, in the Belarus sort of semi-uprising at the moment then? Because there was an awful lot of attention to it earlier in the year. Uh, what's happening now? Yeah, so it's what seems to have happened is that the, the kind of initial wave of protests after very, very vigorous and, and sort of violent repression has, has died down. But there are still these outbursts. Only the other day there was a there was a case when there was a bunch of these sort of security goons attacking a crowd and a very brave group of women were kind of ripping off the balaclavas so these people's faces could be exposed. So it's sort of ongoing. And then, of course, you've got the case of the uh, the kind of opposition journalist, Roman Protasevich, who was the one who was flying on the Ryanair flight from Athens up to Lithuania, and a fighter jet forced the plane down. That was, was back in May which brought a lot of attention back on the situation there. So it's still very kind of um, febrile and, and you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of sort of global interest, but ultimately and tragically for the people of Belarus, people are not, uh, external powers are not really willing to do anything to help those kind of uh, protesters beyond just the sort of moral support. Uh, also on the foreign desk, the UK and the US have both condemned the attack on the tanker MV Mercer Street, uh, which is operated by an Israeli-owned firm, and it was attacked off Oman on Thursday, and two people were killed. What is happening there? I mean, sort of, when you're old enough like me to remember, a bunch of scrap merchants have landed on, you know, South Georgia. Little tiny skirmishes often precede larger conflicts. Don't they? What, what is going on with that? Well, so this is part of the sort of shadow war between Iran and Israel. And if you think about Periodically, you hear these extraordinary incidents like, you know, yet another Iranian nuclear scientist has died in mysterious circumstances inside Iran. And so it it appears that this attack was probably carried out by some kind of drone. And the Iranians have been developing increasingly sophisticated armored drones that, you know, can, can, can sort of carry out basically targeted air raids, if you like. And obviously, this is an Israeli owned uh, uh, um, tanker or well, operated by an Israeli-owned uh, business. Um, two people were killed. I think one of them was a Brit, sadly. And I, I think you can certainly expect some kind of retaliation on the Israeli side, whether it takes a form of something fairly sort of public or another one of these mysterious incidents, a sort of assassination type thing, uh, remains to be seen. But basically, these two countries have been a state of fairly kind of vigorous armed conflict for some time now, but it's always been kept below the kind of warfare level and it's just a continuation of these these sort of isolated attacks that, that go on. Britain and Iran have both called in one another's diplomats for, for addressing down. As a uh, as somebody who was in this business, what happens under those circumstances? Is, is it a kind of a, a ceremonial re- reading of, uh, of a condemnation? Or are, 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 they, are they real or are they symbolic, those events? Well, it's it's a bit like being summoned to the headmaster's study. You will be summoned to a large room uh, full of uh, cross-looking people. In this case, I guess Dominic Raab, who, uh, for all for all his failings, I'm sure can can come across as quite intimidating. And you'll literally be sort of read read a, a series of um, of sort of loud complaints. Now, clearly, if you're the Iranian uh, senior Iranian diplomat based in London. You're probably pretty inured to this. You probably don't care very much. It's arguable it doesn't have much of an impact. But I think it, it's important because it's a way of demonstrating in a very kind of formal and there's no there's no room for misunderstanding that this is taken very seriously. And, and you know, they can't pretend, oh, well, you know, we got away with this. No one really cared. So it, it's part of the theatre of diplomacy. But in the, you know, in the big scheme of things, it, it doesn't amount to very much. Having loud complaints right at you. It sounds like they're on Twitter. <laughs> Now, official secrets, there's nothing to hide. Official secrets, let the people decide. The government just floated proposals for toughening the Official Secrets Act, ostensibly to deter foreign spies. There is a good case for updating the law, which was introduced in 1911 and last updated in 1989, to take account of the fact that most leaks and espionage now take place through encrypted digital communications. But it seems that the proposals are more concerned with saving the government's embarrassment and intimidating journalists than keeping Putin out of Boris Johnson's WhatsApps. 
the new legislation would crack down on unauthorised disclosures or leaks of sensitive information. So the investigations into the MP's expenses scandal, the Snowden leaks on US and UK spy agencies, and even Matt Hancock's corridor snog would have all fallen foul of it, and public interest defences are nowhere to be found in the proposals. UK Press Gazette warned that UK journalists could be jailed like spies if the changes go through. Arthur Snell, I'm going to guess that you've had to sign the Official Secret Act at some point, or, or are you even allowed to say? Well, I, I, I don't think I have to hide the fact that I have signed it. But one of the things about it is that you're liable for it, whether you signed it or not. So that's everyone talks about sign the act. But actually, mm-hmm. anyone who works in in certain, you know, professions where you have access to official secrets, uh, you're 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 under the scope of the act. Right. How fit for purpose is it at the moment? I mean, it hasn't it hasn't been revised since Sol to Sol were number one. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think it's reasonable to say that. And then certainly there's this point about uh, there's no law governing um, espionage per se. In fact, some people have said that rather than updating the Official Secrets Act, there should be a separate Espionage Act. Certainly, you know, if if someone is spying against the UK, but they're doing that from outside the UK, there's no real law to stop them from doing that. So it does seem reasonable to update it. But I think what's happened very clearly here is that the sort of toxic combination of a highly authoritarian Home Secretary, Priti Patel, and a Prime Minister who just doesn't give a fuck about anything, means that they've, they've just decided to sort of go all in on, on the sort of authoritarian approach. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the proposals effectively conflate investigative journalism and spying. The words journalist and journalism aren't actually even in the main text. Uh, but this unauthorised disclosures thing, which you know could include government sources speaking to journalists, without which it's really, really hard to do meaningful journalism, is in there. And there's also talk of increasing prison penalties for for, uh, for infringements from two years to up to fourteen years. Is it just you know war on pesky journalists? I'm sure. I'm sure a lot of it is. Yes, um, because we're, we're in a state of time where the government sort of approaches everything that you know you're either with us, you're part, you're part of the team, you're inside the tent, you're a proper patriot. Or your, um, you know, your your enemies of the people, and and specifically, they've said there's not necessarily a distinction in severity between spying, i.e., you know, an illegal act to steal our national secrets, and the most serious leaks. Now, I think you could very quickly start to argue about uh, uh, that point. And the other thing they haven't done is they they haven't introduced a public interest defence. So, uh, there, if if somebody sees something which is a secret government document, but it is the government up to no bloody good, um, uh, there's no defense for that. And and there are so many case studies of where, you know, governments do wrong things. And I speak as someone who was proud to serve a government for nearly 20 years, but governments get things wrong. So the idea that there could never be a public interest defense seems to me particularly ridiculous. The Home Office insists that it's not going to treat journalists like spies, and it says they'll remain free to hold the government to account. But isn't this kind of relying on the good chapism, decent behaviour defence that basically died in about uh, 2015, do you think, Arthur? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the whole British system, I mean, not just on this thing, does rely on the sort of good chap theory that you've got You've got people who sort of uphold the, the, the public interest and, and sort of act broadly in, in a kind of ethical manner. Well, I mean, just look at who the prime minister is. Just look at the way uh, Priti Patel is, is happy to kind of whip up kind of mob anger against, uh, against footballers who take the knee. You know, who the hell are we relying on to, to make the right decision? And don't forget, it's the same home office that pursued a racist and fundamentally illegal campaign to deport British citizens and long-term residents, uh, so-called Windrush generation, who had every right to be in this country. And it's the same home home office that hasn't paid the compensation that they promised. So, I mean, you just cannot rely on them uh, to do the right thing. I mean, I think the point is you can't trust the home office to run a bath, fundamentally. Like, but... Absolutely. But I think it, it's more than that, which is that they, I think they have a cynical and, and a tendency to not just be incompetent, but actually play to a a cynical authoritarianism. Well, one of the disturbing, one of the numerous, many disturbing things about it is that it, it actually, rather than specifically designating certain acts of journalism as illegal, it kind of opens a window of potential prosecution, which can only have a chilling effect. 
you know, the idea that there is, there is no distinction between espionage and, and unauthorized disclosures. We haven't even seen, as far as I'm aware, a proper kind of legal testing of what onward disclosure really means. So this goes into law. And then every legal department in every newspaper is going to have to sort of second guess it until case law is made. And nobody wants to be the person on whom case law is made. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. I think that the only thing I would say, you know, I, as I've probably made clear, I'm, I'm not exactly a supporter of these proposals, but governments find it incredibly difficult to actually get conviction. So if you think of the most serious attempts by governments to actually prosecute someone for leaking official secrets, you had the case of Catherine Gunn, who worked for GCHQ, so right in the most secret part of the sort of British state. She was involved with intercepting uh, communications prior to the Iraq war, and she leaked that to a journalist. And, and the government got as far as putting her in court, and then they dropped the case against her. So they weren't, they weren't actually able to, to bring the case against her. And then you've got two case studies before then, Richard Tomlinson and David Shaler, who were both I think far less sort of admirable figures. They were people who basically would want to make money from writing a tell-all book about their experiences in MI5 and MI6. But both of them, whatever you think of them, at the end of the day, managed to sort of, you know, get away with it. They both managed to publish books. They both managed to appear on TV, talk about their experiences, all the rest of it. And so it seems to me that, um, now you might say, well, yes, with this new law, the government will, will find it much easier. But I think it's always very difficult because ultimately to mount a prosecution, the government has to go to the court and say, these are secrets that you have exposed and therefore we are now prosecuting you. So they have to admit to, you know, to the thing being a secret. So I think ultimately part of this is to try to have that chilling effect, to scare people with the threat of prosecution. But I, I doubt whether very much actual prosecuting will happen. But also, I guess that like this notion that they're they're so shit at using the powers that they already have, then we shouldn't necessarily be worried about them having more powers because they'll just be shit at using those as well. Uh, is is not that comforting, I suppose? No, it, it it's not. I, I, it's certainly not a basis on which you'd want to sort of run a democracy. I think. <clears throat> Arthur, how onerous is our official secrets legislation compared to you know to the rest of the world? I mean, obviously, we we would expect ourselves to be rather better than you know Russia and Hungary. But I mean, in, in the kind of in the self-designated free world, how bad are we on the official secrets front? I mean, I think that there are quirks. I mean, one of the things to say is that there are a lot of countries because of history have something called the Official Secrets Act, which is based on the same British Official Secrets Act that, you know, originated around the time of World War One. And obviously it's evolved in different directions. But Canada, India, Australia, all those countries have similar sorts of frameworks. If you look at the US, they have some pretty draconian laws when it comes to classified intel uh, and, you know, some journalists, for example, there, there was the case of the journalist who refused to, re New York Times journalist, I think, who refused to reveal a source, an intelligence source, and she ended up being imprisoned for a while. Um, and that's, you know, America, which, which sort of has a, a shibboleth around freedom of speech and so on. In France, the written law is, doesn't look particularly draconian, but the sort of French secret services are extremely powerful, capable of doing some quite uh, sort of um, quite remarkable and, and scary things when they want to. So I think lots of countries, including mature democracies, do act in, in this way. But it, the, the protection of journalists is frequently in some way or other a constitutional right in, in a lot of Western democracies. And of course, we don't have a written constitution and, and therefore that doesn't pertain in this country. Consultation on this is now over, and with an 80-seat majority and an opposition largely in disarray, it doesn't look like much can be done about this in the Commons. Are we back to relying on the Lords again to get something done about these proposals? I, I imagine that's where most of the debate will take place. I mean, the, yeah, the sock puppets in, in the Commons obviously don't care. It would be interesting to see whether there's any serious pushback. I mean, I think, yeah, the people trying to push back in the House of Lords will be accused of not taking British security seriously that they'll they'll have their patriotism question so I, I think we're just going to have we're just going to have to deal with that now bliss it is in this dawn to be alive but to be young is bloody awful the pandemic is winding down possibly and as the bills come in it looks like the cost will fall heavily not on the conservatives client vote of pensioners but on the young for example the government plans to pay for the social care crisis not by increasing tax on the over 40s but by raising national insurance effectively a tax on the young 
National insurance is a regressive tax paid by working age adults, tweeted Andy Burnham. How could it be right to ask a generation already saddled with university fees and high housing costs to pick up the whole tab? And then, of course, there's housing and climate change and the whole post-pandemic recovery. So what is to be done? We're now joined by Phoebe Hansen, past coordinator of Mock COP26, and she's on the University of Huddersfield's Growing Up Under COVID-19 project. Hello, Phoebe. How are you? Hi, I'm doing good. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. I mean, you work with a a range of young people in secondary schools and universities across multiple projects on COVID, on climate change. Do you think wider society gets the degree to which, you know, young people have been firstly affected by the pandemic? You know, the, the, you know, the rise in antidepressant prescriptions and the rising number of people hospitalized for eating disorders. Does wider society get the, the, the impact of it on young people? I honestly don't think so. When I talk to my family members, when I talk to people that I know that have been through things like this before, like being through the university journey, being through college, sixth form, everything, it may have a kind of uh, rose-tinted glasses view of what my experience has been. And in reality, my first year of university was pretty much entirely in my accommodation. I was sat in the centre of campus on a completely like dead street because you couldn't hear anybody. Everyone was all in their rooms. I had mm. eight hours of teaching throughout the entire year. I, it's, I think there's so much demonisation of young people in the, the, the kids hanging on the street corners, the kids outside of McDonald's, that I don't think the older generation fully understands how much we have been through in the last couple of years and how much has been taken from us. Um, we've, been, we've been robbed of pretty much our like years of our youth. And that's, I don't think it's ever something we're going to get back. Yeah, I mean, it's astonishing the uh, the degree to which uh, older people uh, tend to sort of employ these kind of woolly, pull yourself together, we got through, fill in the blank, without actually understanding the, the, the unique circumstances of now. But, you know, research uh, from the National Centre of Social Research is indicating that poor mental health means students are now three times less likely to get 5G CSE. So that's not a, an airy-fairy, woolly thing. That's actual real consequences for people's job prospects. So early lockdowns on university campuses, for instance, and, and the kind of what you've just described, being stuck in a basically doing uh, online courses in a ghost town. What is the situation on like on campus now as we go into a new academic year? It was honestly really weird. Um, I'm off campus now for summer, but it was. <laughs> you go through phases. You go through waves of right at the start of the year. Everyone was really excited to be there. You know, all the new freshers, and we were. You could. You could. You wouldn't be able to talk to them. Really, you couldn't really like communicate with any of them but you could see these groups of people in their flats just kind of like walking around and it was like oh there are people here that aren't just like me and my flatmates and then you'd get periods where everyone had just lost motivation to go out to do things you'd be doing the same night over and over again you'd be doing the same meals you're doing the same things because you couldn't go out and Mm. do anything you couldn't really like go for meals you couldn't you couldn't go out to clubs or to bars or to anywhere so everyone just it's pretty much after christmas actually that we all got very like down we got very dejected i a couple of people i know ended up referring themselves to mental health services in that Mm. time it was honestly awful but then as soon as restrictions lifted it was (laughs) you go back to the freshers excitement again and i think that's Mm. what we're gonna see um in september october time is two different year groups experiencing freshers for the first time. Which oh, God. Could either go very badly or very well. I'm honestly not sure. <laughs> Double fresher, fresher squared. Obviously, the, you know, university administrators and college administrators have gone into this situation blind as well. They had no guide rails and no, no guidelines to, to follow. But we are now in a situation where we're having to learn to accept that COVID is going to be part of the medium-term future. What, what do you think university and college administrations should be doing? Where are they getting it wrong? What provisions should they be be making? And, and what have you been hearing again from from the, the people that you're working with as to as to what students want from education now? I think it's honestly what I'm seeing with the university is they're not learning from their mistakes. It's last year I go to Lancaster University and we uh, had a rent strike um, in that we were being forced to pay for our rooms post Christmas, but we weren't allowed to return back to campus. Hmm. We weren't allowed to be going into the rooms and being on the campus that we were paying 150 odd a week for. Um, And obviously social mobility wise, we're a university that prides itself on its social mobility issues. I mean, it's, we've just been nominated for a student social mobility award, I think. Yet we are asking students to pay thousands for something that they are not actually like 
fulfilling. They're not actually using. And that's a massive social mobility issue. That's something that, for example, myself, somebody that works to pay my university rent, somebody that has to work during my university term, which is surprisingly quite rare nowadays, I think. It is incredibly difficult to become a part of your university community when you feel like your university is working against you, when you feel like you are a customer rather than a student, when the university is a business rather than a place where you're going to get expired, when you're going to be educated, you're going to learn more about the subjects and the topics that you're passionate about and start communicating with people in that way. I think it's, it's, I mean, you see it with the vaccine passports at the moment, the um, communications around vaccine passports for university students to be able to go into their accommodation, to be able to accept their offers. Mm. That's like, I, I mean, I signed my accommodation contract in December of 2020. People sign them much earlier than that. If you wait until the start of new term to decide that policy, you're going to have thousands of students paying out for rooms that they're not occupying and you we can't afford that. You're saying social mobility and access to universities are holding such a price tag on university education and putting so much so many extra parameters on going to university. And it I think that's that's where universities are going wrong. It's treating their students like they are a commodity and like the university is a business rather than that they are a place of education. One of the things that in a, in a customer vendor relationship, as the customer, you can usually decide not to buy. You can usually decide not to pay yeah. and go somewhere else. But if you're on year two of a course where you've already invested, exactly. uh, you know, however many, this is how old I am. I don't know what the what the, the annual fees, it's like nine grand or something now. You're already in, in the hole for one year. You're not really in a position to be able to just withdraw your payments and say, I'll shop around for another university, are you? So it's actually, it's not really yeah. a customer relationship. You're very much, as a student, you're very much at a disadvantage. I think the thing that we've also been grappling with is my university has gone down in the league tables and Mm. I think a lot of other universities have, particularly in their responses to the pandemic, in that the teaching has gone down quite significantly and in quality and just the contact time has not been that. As I say, I've done eight to nine hours for the entire year last year that I paid 9,250 for, I think. Um, That's a thousand pounds an hour. That's kind of like, there are lawyers who would envy that. (laughs) I mean, we did we did the online seminars, we did the Teams chats, but I mean, nobody talks, nobody wants to do things. But it's, I, we are tied to a university that we have no control over and mm. that we don't feel like we have ownership of, we don't have ownership of because I don't feel a part of my university community. No societies were running. I didn't get to join in in the, in the we have liberation forums at Lancaster and the Student Union for LGBTQ plus and BAME students. Um, we didn't get to join in in any of that. We didn't get to do the students' union stuff. We didn't get to be a part of that university and feel like we were changing it. We are just being pulled along with a current that is not <laughs> going in our favour. And it's incredibly disheartening, especially when I was a student when we, we, we were being forced along with the COVID pandemic. In the, in the first wave of the pandemic, we finished our A-levels in a time where we didn't know whether we were going to be able to sit exams. We were studying, even though we'd been told that we didn't have exams because we knew that the governments could do a U-turn and just say, nope, you have an exam in a month, go prepare for it. Mm. We're, we're, we're learning to have trust issues, I think, as a, as a generation of students. And I think <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredibly disheartening. Yeah. Well, uh, Manchester University, because I've got uh, you know family members at Manchester University, they were the first to announce they're moving permanently to blended learning, in heavy quotes, which is essentially you're going to be doing an awful lot of stuff on Teams. And that, as you've described, is not the university experience many people expected or, or were sold. Do you think that going into the future, this is going to change people's picture of what the university experience is? That like perhaps you're you know that you're going to be walking into it knowing that perhaps you will be spending an awful lot of time staring at a computer screen, and that that will change the sort of place that you'll want to go to, and it will change what you're willing to pay for. I think yeah, it's the the issue for me is is the price. It's that the price hasn't gone down, even though the quality of the education that I'm receiving has gone down significantly. It's I, I took a French minor, a French beginners minor, and uh, because I'd heard from somebody that it was gonna, it was really good. They'd learned a lot of the language. They'd been to France. They'd been able to talk to people. It was great. And then I did it, and it was all online. And um, you can't really learn a language completely online when it's like a communication and like conversational style of thing. 
I know a green owl who would beg to differ. That's, uh... <laughs> the one that harasses you by notification. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's that I'm still paying the same amount as my friend that got so much out of that year of French. I'm paying the same amount as her, and yeah. yet I know nothing. And yet I'm, I'm still here. And like if, for example, the vaccine passport, if you expect a student to have two vaccinations i mean you can't have two vaccinations given the time period between yeah. them if you ask students to have them now you won't be able to do it by september so you end up missing another year which is just ridiculous but in mm. any case um it, it's adding more parameters onto a contract that you have signed with the yeah. university and it's just it's so disheartening it's so i just yeah you, you get to a point where it's I quite enjoyed this last year from a career standpoint because my lessons really were kind of like podcasts. They were just kind of glorified oh, podcasts. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> my lectures, like I'd do them at like 1am, 2am and I'd be working during the day. Like mm. for my bank balance and for my like LinkedIn profile, that was pretty good. But I mean, for my academic prowess, my yeah. for my academic life that's awful and I'm very lucky I think that I was a first year during that experience because if I was in third year and I was getting all of my teaching that was like specific and um really like niche teaching that needed to be quite high level I would not have been able to finish my year I absolutely wouldn't have so I have complete respect for everyone that finished their university degree during the pandemic I hear you were at university far more recently than me and Arthur, a mere 10 years ago. Mm. Seems like five minutes ago. Would you have fancied online courses in your own little cubicle on nine grand a year? Well, yes. I mean, I having been born under the major government, I've always felt like the James Dean of this podcast. Uh, that's, a, <laughs> that's something, you know, that I very much reveled in. Um, but no, I think online courses at nine grand a year, or indeed a lot of stuff at nine grand a year uh, seems extremely steep because it's not that that's almost not the worst of it. Right. On the, on, on the face of it, it's the 9,000 pounds a year, but uh, it's the interest, which is something like uh, retail price index plus three and a half percent or something like that, that makes it absolutely nuts. And it means that people are very, unless they're earning quite a lot of money don't end up paying down the principal and are essentially lumbered with a much higher marginal tax rate for a period of 30 years or however long it is until it gets uh, written off and obviously at the same time in your life where you're doing the most capital intensive things that you're likely to do in your life i.e buying first home starting to think about starting a family and that sort of thing so yeah i, I think that it, it seemed an unattractive uh, position at nine grand and definitely a deeply unattractive position at nine grand if as phoebe said you know you're occasionally seeing these people on zoom and not actually able to access the 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 full scope of the university experience which isn't just uh, the lectures and whatnot how do you think that this kind of borderline educational mis-selling is going to play with these students parents who are possibly conservative voters well i i don't know i mean like I think that most of the people who vote for the fuck you party are comfortable saying fuck you, which uh, generally means that they might not be as uh, as sort of sentimental about uh, the effects what, that it will even have with their, their own kids. Uh, as possible. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I, I, I would, uh, I would say so. But then I'm not an elected official or tied to any sort of political party, so I don't have to pretend that I think otherwise, which is useful. I don't know. I, I can imagine like lots of parents feeling a frustration about it. Like I've certainly heard from people in the older generation, you know, Gen Xers and boomers talking about, ah, uh, oh, well, it's so difficult for young people to get on the housing ladder and it's so difficult for to do X and Y comparatively. But then the second any practical thing has to be done in order to ameliorate that problem, uh, mm. the drawbridge gets put up pretty damn quickly. And this, that isn't just even a thing with uh, conservative voters, right? Like we've seen how quickly the yeah. Labour Party has uh, wished to pivot towards nimbyism in order to uh, secure the votes in the blue wall uh, and what have you. So, yes, I think that there, there's a lot, of, a lot of concern that amounts to, oh, isn't that a terrible shame for you? And not a lot of active appetite to do anything that might make the situation slightly less bleak. Arthur, your kids will be at university not all that long from now. I realise this may be a heartbreaking thought for you. They time flies by so quickly. I know your 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 uh, 
making me face a difficult fact there. I'm terribly sorry, Arthur, but I have to ask you this. I mean, are you as a parent viewing it differently now? It's shown how careless universities can be of their students stroke customers. Uh, I, I mean, I'll be honest, I hadn't. I'm, I'm still sort of taking on board the experience of people like Phoebe. And I'm obviously very sorry to that she's gone through all of that, having put so much money, you know, in, in, in onto her education. But I, I guess there's a wider point that it, one is acutely aware that the universities now charge quite a lot of money. And, and as a parent, you know, some of that money might be coming from me or my kids might be taking on a lot of debt. Who knows? But either way, it doesn't seem that these universities have have sort of moved on from the state when I went to university, where it was all covered by government grants and, 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 and fees and so on. And so universities haven't quite sort of got on board with the fact that, that as you said, you know, that the, the students are customers paying for what should be a premium product. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it seems to me there's a cultural shift that needs to occur. Um, and, you know, whether or not we want our universities to be sort of commercial entities, they effectively are, but they're not behaving like them. Yeah, it's like one big fire festival with lectures at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Phoebe, I want to ask you about how young that, people have been... I would go to. <laughs> <laughs> Graduate at the University of the Fire Festival. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. Jarul, yeah, Jarul delivering a lecture on why he created the Gulag would be uh, extraordinary. Yes. Absolutely, yeah, business planning with the guy with the Avion. Anyway, never mind all that. Phoebe, I want to ask you about how we talked about the, the pandemic earlier. I want to ask you how young people have been represented in the media throughout COVID and talked about. So, seldom allowed to talk for themselves, but certainly talked about. You know, images of you know lengthy queues of young people going to nightclubs and crowding into small spaces, and you know, suggesting that they don't really fear COVID at all. There's a YouGov poll just come out suggesting that 57% of young people are in favour of vaccine passports for, for nightclubs. They're a bit more responsible, maybe, than certain old people newspapers might make out. What's your? You know, you talk to students and young people and kids at school across the board what's your sense of of how young people feel about vaccination and their kind of responsibilities and roles in this in this whole caper i mean i think the young people that i talk to might be a little bit biased towards the vaccines but i can say that i have never met a young person that is anti-vax like ever in my experience and i had probably met about in the last month about 200 and had conversations with them it's (laughs) i think the issue with media representation of young people is that the media likes to talk about young people as if we are like aliens and we can't talk for ourselves. It's obviously there are safeguarding issues with that, but it's there's a massive divide between what young people actually think and what older people think that young people think. It's mm. the the thing of the, what was it uh, that young people wanted uh, free taxi rides, pizzas, and the supermarket discounts so that's what i was seeing on twitter the other day yeah. in order um, to get your vaccine yeah. for young people to get a vaccine everyone i know is waiting to get the text <laughs> to be able to do it that i mm. can't think of one person that doesn't want to get a vaccine i mean i was a little bit i don't like needles <laughs> but that was the only reason that i hesitated yeah. a little bit but i always i always would have done it and i think pretty much every young person that i know every young person that i know, that I know thinks the same there's one or two people that physically can't have the vaccine but I mean you'd say the same about any age demographic I think Mm. young people are villainized to the point where I mean I've I've had lengthy conversations with both the 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 young young people that I work with and the people my age and older about uh, the clubs reopening um, how this last stage of lockdown is kind of the things that are geared towards the young people and there's a massive fear to be honest that this is going to be like the only reason that the government have allowed this to happen is so that young people can be used as a scapegoat so young people can be used as a scapegoat for the cases that were already rising so that we can be the ones that the blame is shifted on apart from like instead of the bad policy i think young people are scared to go out i went out for the first time last week and i hated it i was out for about 20 minutes and then i left and I think I stepped about two foot inside a club, sat at a table and then left. I was like, mm. nope, absolutely no way. I had taken three LFTs that day, <laughs> as had everyone that I knew. And yet still, we can't, I, I just, it, it feels completely wrong. Andrew, and uh, Andrew, LFT is the cool new drug that the young people are doing. I was thinking, <laughs> what is that uh, stuff? Yeah, a- can you get me some? Yeah, he's down, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
are the supermarket shelves empty where you live? There seems to be very little rhyme or reason to who's got decent supplies in their local Tesco and who's got the Iron Curtain range at the local Waitrose. What is happening? What should we look out for? We spoke to somebody who knows. I'm Ian Wright. I'm the Chief Executive of the Food and Drink Federation. Uh, We represent the manufacturing sector in the farm-to-fork food supply chain, and we speak for nearly a 1,000 companies across the sector. So we've seen a number of food shortages over the last few weeks, but actually, although they've got a lot of coverage, received a lot of coverage in recent weeks, those shortages have been building up for some time. In the labour market for food, the COVID and Brexit crisis have driven some specific changes. So one is that obviously the number of people on furlough, particularly in food to go and of course in hospitality. So very large numbers of people on furlough. Of the 4.1 million people who work between farm and fork across the food supply chain, some of them in farming, some of them in manufacturing and producing, many of them in retail, many of them in either contract catering or food-to-go sandwich shops and takeaways, or a large number in hospitality. We also should say that there are large numbers of people who work in packaging, where 70% of packaging in the UK is for food, and nearly half the logistics journeys undertaken in the UK are also for food. So you've got a very large number of people across a series of different areas, and a number of those have been significantly impacted by Brexit, where something approaching a million people have gone home from the UK, mostly to the EU. And a number of people, maybe 400,000 have been furloughed. And then one very big change, which I don't think has had enough attention, has been the fact that over 200,000 have joined Tesco and Amazon principally, but also other online operators to do the picking and distribution in online retail. And that means that there's been a big draw on the available working population, both from these long-term structural changes in terms of people going home or being on furlough or moving into online. And then more recently, in the last few weeks, we've seen huge numbers of people pinged by track and trace. In particular, over the last three or four weeks, we reckon that as many as one in four or even one in three in hospitality are off at any one time because they've been pinged. And these all together mean that distribution has been hit uh, in terms of logistics journeys. So some distribution has not happened. Some factories have not been able to get their supplies. Some suppliers have not been able to deliver supplies to retail. And that has all had an impact. We haven't seen very many examples of empty shelves, but we do see quite a significant impact on the availability of specific products and on the capacity to deliver just in time. And that affects both supermarkets and restaurants. And then further into the distribution chain, you've also seen quite a large number of hospitality outlets either have to restrict their opening hours, their availability of uh, products and meals, or in some cases, had to shut altogether. So it's been a big impact. Our guest, Phoebe Hansen, is a major climate change campaigner. Um, she's a youth activist with the NCS. She uh, works with Rally International, which is a, a youth project on climate change. Um, she has also been a coordinator of Mock COP26, a parallel to COP26 conference that's going to be happening here. And she's on the University of Huddersfield's Growing Up on the COVID-19 project. Phoebe, um, tell us, you know, firstly, I mean, you're on this swathe of, of climate change. Is there a kind of a, a, a central thrust where young people are kind of concentrating their efforts more? Because we tend to hear a lot about Extinction Rebellion and extreme stunts and, sh- you know, shutdowns and trying to shut down newspaper print works and clear yourself to trains and things like that. Does that play with the kind of people that you're working with? I think actually there has been quite a shift away from Extinction Rebellion recently. Mm. I think the tactics that Extinction Rebellion use are very focused on <laughs> when you sign up to XR um, as Extinction Rebellion, um, you sign yourself up as non-arrestable or arrestable. And that it, it, we are young and we have our entire lives ahead of us in terms of jobs and careers and 
most of us can't afford to be arrested and have that on our criminal record forever. So, um, it, it, yeah, <laughs> it, we are normally not involved in that kind of thing. But there are there is um, XR youth who do a lot of things. But youth focus at the moment is mostly based on COP26, mostly based on policy. It's around, I mean, not COP26, which is what we did. Um, it's trying to get adequate youth involvement within political processes. It's trying to get politicians to actually listen to young people, to make sure that young people are at the centre of conversations about their future. And I mean, beyond that, that Indigenous communities, that people of colour, that people across the global south are included within conversations for a crisis in which they're disproportionately impacted, ensuring that we include the voices that have been oppressed for centuries into the conversation that will help us to determine what the future of the next couple of centuries will be last year was the first on record to be in the top 10 for heat rain and sun uh, in the uk we're in the middle of a period of, of very strange weather in the uk over the past couple of weeks we've just seen the met office issue its first ever extreme heat warning for the uk the red cross just put out a survey saying that a majority of people british people aren't actually too worried about dangerous rises in heat themselves only nine percent believe they are personally at risk do you think we should be thinking more about weather scepticism rather than climate denialism? Because, you know, it's kind of, you know, broadly accepted now that climate is changing and that, and that humans are, are at, at fault for that. But people seem to think that it doesn't put them personally at risk until their basement floods. It is infuriating, honestly. I saw an interview. Um, it is, I've forgotten where it was exactly. It was the floods that are happening in mainland Europe right now. And there was an interview with a woman on it. And she said something along the lines of, you expect this to happen in the poorer countries. You don't expect this to happen here. Mm, and I think yeah, that, is, that, that is the viewpoint of, was it Germany? That was the viewpoint of most of what my experience has been of talking to my parents, talking to my family members, talking to people across the UK and across most global North European countries. It's that it's not going to affect us. It's mostly affecting the people in the global south. It's mostly affecting people who are already suffering these kind of like temperature highs and lows. It's no different to what they're already experiencing. We have such a, um, a lack of knowledge about what people in the global south experience on a day-to-day basis in terms of their climate that we just think it's normal that they are having to migrate into cities, migrate into different places, that they are becoming climate refugees and climate migrants. We think that that's, that's normal because... This isn't a, an experience that we live every day. It's an experience that looks different to us. It's a different colour of skin. It's a different experience, different culture, different religion. So we kind of dismiss it. We push it back because we don't see it as ourselves. We don't, in some senses, I think, see them as equal human beings. We see them as people that are experiencing this far off threat that's only going to come to us in the next hundred years and our governments will come in and they will save us. But the reality is and the science is that when climate change hits the global north and it's already hitting the global north when we start to feel the effects on the same level that the global south is it is way too late it's already too late britain is is hosting actual cop 26 this year and it's a grand showpiece for boris johnson's government upcycled spokesperson allegra stratton has been calling on people to stop scraping their plates before putting them in the dishwasher and uh, and to join the Green Party to fight climate change. Are these the sort of big ideas that, that will actually really make a difference? I mean, what, what are you hoping for from COP26 apart from don't abuse your dishwasher? I mean, you know what my answer to this is. <laughs> it's I, I saw that <laughs> as a headline. I opened Twitter for the day. You always do that. You open Twitter. I saw that. <laughs> and I think I just immediately closed it and threw my phone across the room. The actions that we need to be taking are to lead the way, as the UK, we need to lead the way on climate. We need to be the leaders. If we're going to be hosting COP26, if we're going to be the ex-colonist countries that we are, if we're going to be the people that have one of the most historic, the biggest historic carbon emissions in the world, we need to be leading the way in the solution. We need to be making sure that we are paying our debts that we are you know that report that said britain is not a racist society we need to be living up on that and to ensure that we are not killing millions of people in the global south just to line the pockets of people the the mates of the people in government to make sure that we're not just continuing the status quo continuing what's going on that we are ensuring that we are doing what's best not only for ourselves, but for our British citizens, but also for people across the Commonwealth, people across the world as human beings. That's what we need to do as the UK. What we need to do at COP26 is to 
I mean, what we need to do with COP26 is actual ambitious climate action, to be quite honest with you. It's not fighting over where a comma should be in a sentence. It's fighting over the oil and gas companies and what their contracts should be and ensuring that our economy is not linked to fossil fuels, that everything that we're negotiating is not just intrinsically linked to carbon economy. It's not just intrinsically linked to these fossil fuels, to the debts that we have to these companies. What what I really hope for COP26 and what I'm not seeing right now is we need meaningful youth inclusion within that process. We need meaningful stakeholder engagement within that process. We need to ensure that, as I was saying earlier, that Indigenous communities, that Global South communities, that women are included at that table in a capacity where they can participate in that conversation. It's hard enough for the um, young women that I work with from the global south, from, from places that aren't normally represented within these places, it's hard enough for them to join as observers, for them to get the funding behind them, to be able to fly to Glasgow or get the train to Glasgow and to stay there for like two weeks or longer. It's hard enough for them to do that as observers, not people that don't participate in that conversation. We need them there as delegates. We need a youth delegate program in the UK. We need people that actually represent the people that are not only going to feel the solutions in the future, but are feeling the solution, they're feeling solutions, feeling the problem in the future, but feeling the problem right now. We need to make sure that those people are ref- reflected at the table because that's the reason we don't have urgency, in my opinion, is because people that are creating those solutions are not the people that will ever really feel the effects of climate change. They have no real incentive to be doing it other than like a legacy to leave on. I think you need the people that are going to truly fight for um, a sustainable solution, for a just recovery, for, I mean, justice as a whole, for climate justice. They're, those are the people you need at a decision-making table. And that brings us to the end of this week's Bunker. Um, thank you for joining us, Ahir Shah. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, Arthur Snell. Thank you. I'm Phoebe Hansen. <laughs> Thank you very much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite app. And if you enjoy the podcast and you want to help us keep going, then please do consider backing us on Patreon. You'll be funding our producers and our studio, and you'll be helping us to bring you quality podcasts on the regular. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. You'll get the podcast early, and you'll get access to our live show on Zoom next Tuesday. And supporters of the show get a shout-out, of course. And here are some now. Many thanks from me to Tatiana Luhan, Greg Sinclair and Emily Death. So it's best wishes from me to Ben Pincus, Julie Cockman and Ingrid. And finally, best wishes from me to Alex Rogers, Jonathan Ted, and Reed Duthie, long-time Twitter correspondent. Hello, Reed. Thanks for backing us. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Arthur Snell and Ahir Shah. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yolna Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Our intern was Nat Amos. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>